April 3rd, 2016, lecture discussion number 235 on the Book of Romans. You might notice, those of you on the Internet, that we have new lighting, which means I can't see. It's Terry's idea for me to next week wear sunglasses and an Elvis wig. And so I thought that would be cool, some kind of collar thing. Is that one working, Dave, over there yet? Okay, so hi to the people out there as best I can. And there's the other one. We're in multiple cameras at some point trying to be more professional. Oh, three, three multiple cameras. Okay, well, we'll see how that all goes. Anyway, well... We are returning to where we were today, last week being first fruits, which would uh, make sense if we knew where we were. Uh, to be fair, I have some idea, as I usually do, some, of course, being a relative term. And actually, we, we can retrace the steps, sort of, maybe. We last ended up at John 8, specifically... John 8:12, which was the fantastic verse there that Christ calls himself the light of life, uh, that is of uh, Genesis 1-3 reference. That John 8, all of John 8, or most of John 8, is the woman brought before Christ to be stoned for adultery. She also is the bait in a trap, and that makes her similar to the swollen dying man of Luke 14, 1 through 6. So we've made the connection between the adulterous woman that was a bait in a trap from the Pharisees and the swollen dying man, likewise a bait in the trap from the Pharisees. Keep in mind that we are still very afar off from completing the relationships that are John 1, or John 8, 1 through 12 and Luke 14, 1 through 6. We've barely begun the process. A long way to go. And for those of you who are impatient with my pace, which is uh, everybody... What? Can't see? Yes, the lights on the board are blinding the audience. They're blinding me too. Maybe we'll all wear sunglasses next week. Uh, How bad is it? Bad, bad. How are you doing, TJ, with your... Perfect. The audience is complaining, for those of you on the Internet, with our new technological advancement. Uh, they're saying to take my glasses off because the teacher apparently is way too bright. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I can take the glasses off. I won't be able to see. Do, do I kind of show up in a white light, uh, do I? Is that, uh, isn't that... Okay, well, we'll try to survive. It's TJ's fault. This is an experiment to see what the lighting needs are, and we are using the house lighting knowing that we cannot. We'll have to get our own uh, and, and place them uh, accurately instead of the way they are. Uh, let's, uh, Terry, see if you can just slightly, terrifically, turn those down just a little bit and see how that affects everything. The big one's here. I don't think they're going down at all. How we doing? Keep going down with them. There we go. How's that, TJ? Are you still functioning? Okay. My face is now red? Okay, well, I'm now seeing spots because I looked at those things for five or six seconds. Okay, where are we? Let's try this again. We're a long way away from these relationships being established and completed. Like I said, we've barely begun the process. And for those uh, who are waiting for me to speed up, well, I just never do. It's just how it is around here. You need to consider, along with this, Ezekiel 16. Um, I hope 35 through 41. That's the surrounded woman who is in Israel. And I add that to the surrounded woman in John, and I add that to the surrounded swollen man in Luke 14, 1 through 6. So all of those are together. In Luke 14, 1 through 6 came about because of the Sabbath event. This is a Sabbath event. And the Sabbath event also is in Numbers 15. 32 through 36. 
So that is how we got to Luke 14, 1 through 6. The man gathering wood on the Sabbath who is ultimately stoned to death. So I have a stoning to death here. I have a potential stoning to death here. I have a swollen, dying man on the Sabbath. And all of these begin to fit together. And the gathering wood is, of course, very important. Bill the Fast uh, brought up wood this uh, uh, in the pregame here, which is a uh, very important aspect of all of this. helps you solve it once you understand what gathering wood really means. This was ultimately, in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, a bold evil act, a bold in front of God, against God, in the face of God, uh, act of wickedness. Christ, as you are aware, Jonah's worm, attaches himself to wood. Jonah's worm attaches itself to wood. And then it dies with a red fluid. In the red fluid, of course, is its own, is new life, new worms, if you will. So, and also the worm of Psalm 22.6. Where Christ is, um, where the worm of Jonah is also, the crimson worm is also brought to the forefront. You're aware that God has attached wood to himself, if you will. Christ has. God has become man. Absolute Godhood and perfect humanity have joined in what theologically is called the hypostatic union. So uh, there is that attachment to, to wood element being uh, personified, if you are typified by the ark or by the by Christ on the cross, or Christ in humanity. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is wood completely encapsulated by gold. That is the perfect humanity of Christ in total subordination to his deity. That is a largely abandoned truth by the contemporary church of our time. We are, this time, I believe, is the Laodicean vomit church time, Revelation 3.16. But I, I digress there. Anyway, wood is primarily a, when utilized as a symbol, it's a symbol of humanity. That's how it attaches, I'm sorry, that's how it applies to Christ's perfect humanity and deity. Gathering wood has this element in it of humanity. Bill also, Bill the Fast pointed out, that it has an element of the sacrifice for humanity. So that is how we will solve in the coming weeks the uh, Numbers 15, 32 through 36. And that is how we got from the wood cross beam of Luke 14, 25 uh, through 34. That's how we got from from there to the rod of Aaron, the wood rod of Aaron in Exodus 7. So I have the swollen man on the Sabbath, got me to gathering wood. Gathering wood got me to Jonah's worm, got me to the Ark of the Covenant, got me to the crossbeam of Luke 14, 25 through 34. Now that I have got that uh, crossbeam, I begin to... Find the wood rod of Aaron that became a serpent, cast down to become a serpent. That gets me to the lifted up bronze serpent of Numbers 21. When I'm lifting things up, then immediately I'm now in Proverbs 30, 1 through 6, and then I'm also in John 3, 13 through 19, of which 3.16 is probably the most well-known in the modern church today. And when I'm in John 3, 13 through 17, or 19, I end up in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The prophecy of the like unto me, who must be heard. When I'm at must be heard, then that takes me right back here, which is the end of Luke 14, which let all who have ears to hear, hear. 
That's a direct reference to 1434 of Luke by Christ himself. He who has ears, let him hear, is a Deuteronomy 18:15 through 19 direct reference. And that is the conclusion of Luke chapter 14. That began with the dying, swollen man, which got us to John 8:12, the woman who is about to be stoned for adultery. Does that all make sense? If it does, you're sounding like me. Remember also that this dying, swollen man is surrounded by who Christ calls a brood of vipers, and there's a ruler in that house, the ruler of the Pharisees. Anytime you see ruler, you know that you're headed towards John 12:20 or 12:30, where the same word, exact same word, is used of Satan. Sorry, put it in the wrong spot. All of that aforementioned, plus the wood ladder of Jacob, if it is a wood ladder, I believe it is, ascending and descending, ascending and descending, sends me back to Proverbs 30, sends me back to John 3.13, sends me to Genesis 28.12. Only Christ, he says in John 3, can ascend and descend. That's something that only he can do. That tells you that is a hypostatic union event that sends me back up here. And to the Ark of the Covenant. And only Christ is the light of light. Life, I'm sorry, from John 8.12. That's a Genesis 1.3. The light of the world and the light of life are the same light, the primal light. And the adulterous woman of John 8.12 ultimately ends, that passage ultimately ends in John 8.28 with the lifting up of Christ, and back we are again at Proverbs 30, John 3, 13 through 19, the bronze serpent. And so you have this, this complete circle. It's almost, it's completely circular. And finally, not really fake finally, you have Isaiah 14. which is the I wills of Satan. There's five of them. The last one being, I will be like the Most High. That is in direct contrast to Deuteronomy. These two are side by side. One is referencing Satan. The other is referencing Christ. And the issue of the meaning becomes quickly... Uh, what Satan says there, I will be like the Most High. Uh, it is a very mysterious statement. I submit it remains so. I will tell you that one thing it is, is a lie. So you start noticing that this is where the lies of Satan begin. It's a complex declaration by Satan. And... Um, and it's seldom, if ever, even dealt with in the church today. And we're going to try to alter that somewhat. But I want you for today to just keep in mind when he said it. When did he say, I will be like the Most High? Before the creation of man or after? What's your position? Put it on the timeline. If it's before, then mankind never heard it, right? So who did he say it to? When did he say it? Who did he say it to? Ask this question. Who heard him say it? Did he say it out loud? How did it get recorded? Who recorded it? Obviously, Isaiah. How did Isaiah know about this? Was he told by Moses? Was he told by God himself? The prophecy of Isaiah is ultimately a, a inspired by a book, isn't it? In other words... The audience of this statement becomes very important. If any angel heard this statement, what would have been the result of it? Imagine that I have angels in front of Satan and he says, I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14. What would the angels have thought? Because this is a key word here, isn't it? This like. He does not say, I will be the Most High, or I am the Most High. I will be like the Most High. 
Why does he say that? What is he meaning by that? Clearly, he admitted that, uh, that all that he could achieve would be to do what? All he could do is be like. He could counterfeit it. He had, he could counterfeit the attributes of the light of life. Because that is, that is something that only God can do. Only God can bring life. Because only God is the source of life. So to repeat, who did Satan say this to? And was it ever said aloud? Now we have the finally, finally, or the final, finally. Not really, it's fake final, finally. Ezekiel 28.16. I always use the, by the abundance of your traffic. You could use by the multitude of your merchandise. Know that what God is talking about there is a lie of Satan. One of Satan's lies is the abundance of your traffic or the multitude of your merchandise. And God says, I will cast you as, a, as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy you, O covering cherub. Okay? That is the recap the customary recap here to get everybody back on board. It's not a benefit to the vast Internet audience uh, who routinely revisits and repeats the material by te- technological methods. This was mainly for the in-person attendees of what I call the faithful remnant. This is the first time that I can neither see the Internet audience nor see the in-person attendees. So I'm oblivious to everybody now. I'm standing up here with no knowledge of anybody in the audience. I'm completely alone. It's kind of creepy, really. But anyway, the people that come here, for those of you on the Internet, they doubt my adherence to an authored lesson plan. So I have to continually prove that I indeed have one. Anyway, you are probably thinking that we're now going to methodically discharge these components that have thus far languished in neglect. I haven't really cleaned them up yet, and I intend to. This, of course, would be the obvious professional mature approach, which is precisely why we're not going to do it today. Uh, But I'm going to do it soon, really soon. Soon, probably the ultimate relative term. No, so in today, I put that on the board, mostly for the Internet people who can go back and look at it, but also to remind you how I got here what I'm doing, all of these interconnective constructs, if you will, or elements coming to one place, back and forth, around and around. So we're going to, at the behest of Piano Daniel, as opposed to P.A. Daniel, P-O-P-A, right? I used that joke already in the pregame. We will divert our little convoy towards Acts 5. That's what we're going to do. Daniel called me the other day and he said, I have a couple of issues with Acts 5. And, of course, Acts 5 does bear relationship to Numbers 15, 32 through 36, the man gathering wood. Uh, so I thought, okay, this will be fun. I will, I will enjoy it. Daniel will enjoy it. And that means two people will be listening. Okay, just one because I'll, I, I'll sleep through the sermon like I always do. You may have noticed that uh, Acts 5, if we're out of ink, that Acts 5 is conveniently included in the official Cliffside Collector's Edition bulletin. Why Acts 5? What does Acts 5 have to do with the man gathering wood? Or the five I wills of Satan? Or the abundance of your traffic? What does the lies of Satan have to do with Ananias and Sapphira? and the man gathering wood, to repeat it. There is some continuity to Acts 5 and Numbers 15:32, Though, admittedly, Acts 5 is not usually so associated to Numbers 15. But it's going to add context, I think, that will help you in Numbers 15. There are striking relationships 
between these two. First and foremost is that they're both a trial. I have a trial of Ananias and Sapphira, and I have a trial of the man gathering wood. So I start with that right off the bat. That'll help me. Obviously, Numbers 15, 32 through 36 is a legal procedure, a proceeding, a legal proceeding. The sentencing is explained to all of the congregation of Israel. All of the congregation of Israel knows that this man has been sentenced to death, and then there's this memorializing of it, of the outcome with the blue tassels. And the blue tassels explain exactly what has happened in Numbers 15. Why that man, that bold, evil act that he was doing, necessitated uh, his execution. Uh, He wasn't just a guy gathering wood on the Sabbath. He had a plan, a desperately wicked one. Maybe not so desperate. But equally obvious is that anything in the Old Testament in regards to Israel, which is the wife of God, as you know, will have a correlation to the New Testament, bride of Christ. So I have the wife of God, Numbers 15. I have the bride of Christ at Acts 5. So therefore, we should expect Ananias and Sapphira's trial and sentencing. I had a trial and sentencing there as well to be relevatory to the man gathering wood. So let's go ahead and read this very um, well-known passage. I think that I, at least I hope that I'll do it justice in the sense that um, you may not have thought about what I'm going to tell you today. Here we go, Acts 5.1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie To the Holy Spirit. There you go. You see the connections now? And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. So I hope you're beginning now to make these connections back to Isaiah 14, back to Ezekiel 28, 16. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Now you're with Israel in the wilderness, aren't you? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Your Bible translation may not have the behold there, but it better because that is an incredible statement. That, by the way, tells you, helps you understand that something amazing just happened. Then immediately, instantly, if you will, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, I've addressed in the past, many years ago, Acts 5, 1 through 11 previously. I will confess that I have not done it in a comprehensive a manner, mostly so because at the time there was a combination of people attending Cliffside and they all had traditional views uh, on Acts 5 and there was a diverse level of class in the class at the time of understanding the scripture and I didn't want to confuse people. What I really mean by that is I didn't want to upset anybody. Now I'm nearing my impending dotage if I'm not in it. Probably in it. I have no such concerns. I'm offending as many people as I can every time. It's a sense of freedom that I've only had recently, right? So I'll do it again. So far, if you're wondering, uh, 
Coca-Cola has not contacted us. It's not stopping me from annoying them. But So today I'm going to give you what I think is happening here on a more intense level. It's certainly a more complex level than I've done in the past. Having that said, let's construct the obligatory list and ask the apparent questions. Uh, and they're plentiful, as you might have suspected. But first, let's start with the... And by the way, if you don't like this, whose fault is it? That's right, Daniel. Let's start with Acts 4. Specifically, um, 34 through 37. You could go all the way back to the beginning of Acts 4 if you want. But this is a, a good place to get you in the right position. I have omitted the introduction. This is essentially the introduction to Acts 5. That's Acts 4, duh. That's a level of analysis required years of, requiring years of specialized training. Actually, I could go back to 31. Acts 4, 31 might be more appropriate. But I, I'm not going to in the sense that I'll just give you a little background. What happened here prior to Ananias and Sapphira is the Holy Spirit starts shaking. He comes in and he shakes the place. He shakes the place that the apostles, disciples are in. Okay? And that, that causes the disciples to be able, and he fills the disciples. So he shakes and he fills. Okay, there. And that results in the disciples being able to do something extraordinary. They're now able to teach the entire Old Testament in the sense that they now know they're immediately given all of the Christologies without error or omissions. What do I mean by that? By being, by shaking the place and filling the disciples they now have this amazing understanding of how Christ is in the Old Testament. It's very similar, if not identical, to what Christ did to the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24:27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus God, explained to them in all of the scriptures, which is the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So we have the disciples now sharing the same experience, I submit, as those two on the road to Emmaus. They now have all of the Old Testament Firmly, perfectly, it's an incredible amount of wisdom and strength. And they're able to teach it, and they do. So I have this shaking, I have this knowledge given to them, and I now have this teaching going on at a level never seen before, probably never seen since. And following this, Acts 4.31, this defining event is the impact it has on the multitude. There's a multitude there. And they are taught all of the Old Testament Christologies. And that multitude begins to, once they assimilate that truth, the truth that that, uh, is given to them, they immediately recognize that they don't own anything. They have no possessions. That's the, that's the connection they make. Make sure you, I, I make that clear. Does everybody understand that? I have the shaking, the filling of the disciples, the teaching of the Old Testament Christologies or Christophanies, um, all of the Old Testament portraits of Christ, all the typologies, all the symbolism, and then the multitude hears it, and the thing that they, they come with, first and foremost, is we own nothing. We have nothing. We possess nothing. And that's very important. Coupled uh, also with the eyewitnesses, eyewitness evidences of the resurrection of Christ. So that is Acts 41, 
or sorry, Acts 4, 31 through 37. And as a result of that teaching of those things, land was sold, proceeds were laid at the feet of the apostles. Barnabas is identified as a Levite who does this. He establishes a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. And these things, all of what I just gave you, are the precursors to Ananias and Sapphira's event in Acts 5. Uh, and so if you isolate Acts 5 from Acts 4, um, then you're going to uh, come in with inaccuracies guaranteed, certainly imprecision. Uh, and your uh, interpretation of Acts 5 is not going to be at all correct. Don't send me hate mail. Sorry, fake sorry. But that's how it is. Okay? So I got that so far. Any questions? Okay, good. Moving along. Now here comes our list. List maker is going to list. Let's wrap this up as fast as I can. Doing good. I have a certain man. Boy, that comes out of light a lot, doesn't it? A certain man. And, uh, identified. Anna, Nias, and Sapphira. And they sell a sold a possession. And it's pretty much agreed that it is land that they sold because of the context of Acts 4. Not much debate that. But they kept back some of it. Kept back part. Uh, And they knew it. She was aware. So there's a knowingness here. Knowingly. Willfully, if you will. So, it's a will. A willful decision. There's a clue. And they held back a certain part. A certain man holds back a certain part. And they bring and lay it at the feet of the apostles. That, of course, also in contrast to Barnabas at the end of Acts 4. So you see Barnabas, the Levite, Ananias, and Sapphira doing the same thing for clearly different reasons. And Peter asks why. Let me read it again so that you've got that. Find it. Why have you conceived this thing? Why has Satan, I'm sorry, why has Satan filled your heart? I got it. Why has Satan filled your heart? With a lie. So, I got ahead of myself there. The Holy Spirit is there. How do I know that? Has He just finished shaking the place? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Okay, why did you keep it? I'll go really fast. Uh, Own. Didn't you have it? Didn't you own it? Isn't it in your control? See the contrast? The lesson of the multitude was that they own nothing and the amount of control they have is negligible. That was the lesson that they learned from the typologies and the portraits of Christ in the Old Testament when it was taught to them. Why have you conceived this? Conceived this thing. You have not lied just to men. You have lied to God. Is that a good idea? That tells you, by the way, that the Holy Spirit is God. 
just in case you were wondering. And immediately Ananias is dead, and I have young men come and get him and carry him out and bury him. And then three hours pass. Why three hours? Why not four hours? Why not ten hours? Why not one hour? Why not twenty minutes? Three hours? Oops. Sorry. I, that's, I skipped the wrapped, buried, or carried, and buried. Why three hours? And then he asked Sapphira, so much? Yes, so much. Remember, she is aware. This is a lie. You are testing the Spirit or testing God. Behold. Something amazing is going to happen at the door. The feet are at the door. And now Sapphira is dead. She's dead. And once more I have these young men. Final statement is the great fear that happens as a result of this event. Now, it's not uncommon to find commentary on Acts 5 that uh, concludes that Ananias and Sapphira are greedy hypocrites. That's probably the predominant viewpoint. I would say that the view prevails. That's what almost everyone teaches. I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's true. I don't think that it has anything to do with the context that is Acts 4. In other words, what they say is that Ananias and Sapphira, another commercial for Coca-Cola, which solves almost everything having to do with my over-enlarged tongue and lisp. In other words, the commentators mostly agree that Ananias and Sapphira wanted only to pretend to give all of their possessions, but sought to keep a significant portion of it for themselves. So they are greedy and they are hypocrites. That's what they say. Attempting to secure the appearance of commitment without the sacrifice. Uh, That is the common view. So um, I want you to note that a fundamental precept of Scripture is that the created own nothing. That is the context of Acts 4. The created, that is us. We own nothing. The Creator possesses everything, possesses all. He is called the possessor, the most high possessor of all things in Genesis. Recognition of that is important. Our condition, recognition of our condition is vital to having a wise perspective on what we call, what we have recognized as the physical reality. We are foremost not physical. We are spiritual beings, not physical beings. And we own nothing in the physical realm. And as you know, quantum physics is making this truth more and more obvious every single day. We are not physical, we are spiritual. We are, quantum physics is proving definitively that we are a living soul. It is validating everything that the Bible says about us. That's an exciting time to be alive. Anyway, there is no shortage of pastors teaching on this list of Acts 5. There's no shortage telling you that the lesson of Acts 5 is give me your money or you instantly die a horrible death. That's It's a tithing sermon. It's going on somewhere today or tomorrow or next week. Don't be Ananias and Sapphira and hold any money back from me. 
your beloved pastor who needs a new houseboat. I may have embellished slightly, but you get the point. Such a conclusion, to repeat myself, is not supported by Acts 4, that is immediately prior. So if you took conclusions on Ananias and Sapphira without that that I gave you at the beginning, you cannot be right. The shaking, the Old Testament understanding, the evidences of the witnesses who saw the resurrection of Christ, the impact that those had on the spiritual recognition of the multitude was amazing. They immediately knew they owned nothing in the physical reality, so they sold it. They were the first quantum physicists. They got it. The physical reality is not who we are. We're living souls. And they started to disregard their physical materials. And they sold it and gave it to the feet of the apostles. They knew the spiritual implications of subatomic diameter. And they were changed and they responded immediately with the proof that they were changed. Barnabas being the one held out as the most obvious. Okay? So let's ask questions about Acts 5 that are not what I would call defective questions. Did this occur in a vacuum? How many people knew what Ananias and Sapphira were doing? Was it just between themselves? How many men, how many people knew about the man gathering wood on the Sabbath? Did he do it by himself? Ask the same question about Ananias and Sapphira. How many people knew that they were going to do this and knew why? Did you suppose at the first reading of Acts chapter 5 that God is overreacting to this? That he's harsh, that he's unjust, that he's temperamental, that he's unstable, that he's violent, that he's capricious, that he's brutal? Bad God? Is that what you did? A couple of nice people here? Got a guy out in the woods, out in the forest gathering wood? Nice guy. Just one. He's a wood carver. Wants to make little presents for his grandchildren. Is that what you decided in Numbers 15? 32 through 36? Did you do the same thing here? God is not any of those things. None of those attributes applied to God. God is long-suffering. He waits. So, what exactly is going on here? What happened to cause the instant death of these two people? And how many knew about it? How, how big of a multitude is here? How many in the multitude knew Ananias and Sapphira? How many of them knew what they were doing? Was there a committee meeting? There's always a committee meeting in a church, right? Why would this be any different? As is with the case of the man gathering wood, a death sentence is necessary here. Why? If this was about tithing, what would happen to us? We'd all be dead. It can't be about tithing, can it? Just like gathering wood can't be about gathering wood. And I understand the dispensational aspects as you would expect. This is the birth of the church or the beginning of the bride. There is only one birth of the bride. You can't have multiple births of the bride. Why? Because then you would invalidate the birth of the bride. You can't have more than one birth. There's only one birth of the bride, only one birth of the church. There's only one bride. That's why you can only have one crucifixion, only one Messiah. That's why the blood is, is sufficient. You can't say, well, we have to have another... Uh, Savior. The first one didn't get the job done. That which happened at the birth of the bride was specific and exclusive to the birth of the bride. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Events are occurring that never again occur, and for the purpose of cementing the time of the birth of the church, the birth phase, if you will. They validate, they prove the time of the birth of the church. That is the exact pattern of Israel. How many times did Israel cross the Red Sea? There's only one exodus from Egypt. Ananias and Sapphira and the wood man are inside the beginning phase of the church in Israel. The wood man is assigned to the beginning of the nation of Israel. And the Ananias and Sapphira are assigned, if you will, to the church beginning. Having said that, I nonetheless maintain a great evil, a wickedness here has been exposed. It's not about tithing. I understand the dispensational aspect, as I hope I illustrated, but this is not about tithing. Satan is involved in this. He's invoked. A lie that is attributed to Satan is revealed as a component of this act. Ask it this way. Just how evil is this plan by Ananias and Sapphira that it results in their instant death? How evil do you think it is on the evil scale? Evil being ten. I mean, the highest evil, ten. Lowest evil, zero. What's your evil scale? Most people read Acts 5 and they give it an evil scale of one or two. Poor people just held back a little money for their children's education. God killed them. Nasty old God. Don't do that. This is, this is extraordinary evil. Can you identify why it is? How it is? And then again, how evil was the plan of the woodman in Numbers 15, 32 through 36. The next question then applies to both passages. Once we begin at the point that God intervened because the threat was grave, both to Israel in Numbers 15 and now to the church in Acts 5, murderous destruction was imminent in both places. And God acts as you know he, ha- he will. He will protect his plan of salvation for whose sake? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand in this church. But yes, it's for our sake. We are saved because God intervenes. This is a murderous event here. How so? If both the woodman and Ananias and Sapphira were perpetrating a vicious act, how? How is it that way? Well, to answer that, let's again consider what God does. Why does God do this? Why did this result in instant physical death for Ananias and Sapphira? Where else does it happen? Go find the other places it happens in the Bible. It happens with Nadab and Abihu. Remember? It happens at the Korah Rebellion. hope you remember that. Those two first come to mind. Let's just deal with those. Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? They added strange fire to the altar. What is that? The altar is a picture of Christ. What is strange fire to, to, to Christ? It is some kind of corruption, pollution to the doctrine of the truth of salvation through the blood of Christ alone. They had another means of salvation other than Christ. Instant death. First day on the job. Korah challenged the typology of Moses. Korah ultimately denied Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, one of the fundamental truths of the Old Testament. Instant death. So, what's my point? I actually have one. This is where you cheer. Thank you. What doctrine did Ananias and Sapphira attack? They attacked the doctrine. Which one? What's that? He is correct. I'll prove it to you. Those of you on the internet, uh, Bill the Cow yelled out salvation by grace. Let me read it. Say, what is the lie? What is the thing conceived in their heart? And I think it's obvious. Here we go. I will read verse four or chapter four thirty-three. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was among 
I'm sorry, let me repeat it. I said it badly. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was among, upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the things that were, uh, of the things that were sold. If I had time, I would read 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, which says the resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential or we are the most miserable. Right before Ananias and Sapphira, I have the resurrection of Christ and I have great grace. And Ananias, as soon as that's done, that incredible miracle, Satan attacks using Ananias and Sapphira and they attack great grace. They attack the resurrection of Christ. This is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the great grace that was upon them all. This is why God the Holy Spirit does what he does. The lie was concerning the resurrection of God himself and his great grace. And all that remains is for you now to do what? Didn't think I'd lay it out for you, did you? I mean, you get chicken today. You came for the chicken. All you got to do is, how is it that the keeping back of money is attacking the resurrection of Christ. Who are these guys? These young men? Who are they? Where'd they come from? They're given the job of carrying out the dead bodies. How'd they get those jobs? Hanging around? Who? A couple of young men. Hey, you carry out the dead body of the person attacking the grace Salvation by grace, the great grace, and uh, the resurrection of Christ. Why did Peter, who's in the position of Moses, isn't he? Why did Peter, the judge, make these young men do this? Who had the great fear? What did they have fear of? Do you think the quantum physicists had just sold all their stuff? that understood the great grace, understood the typology of Christ, understood the resurrection, had the witnesses, felt the shake. Those people selling everything, do you think they had great fear? Who exactly had the great fear? How is keeping money a vile attack on those doctrines of resurrection and great grace? That's all you have to figure out. Easy as cake, piece of pie. Or you can wait till next week.